Our New Testament lesson is found in Romans chapter 8. We're reading verses 26 and 27 today. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come this morning, we do offer our thanks for your word. It is only in your light that we see and know any light at all. And so we come dependent and weak, confessing our need for your spirit to illumine our minds and to guide us and to teach us to take us in the way of truth. And so we ask, God, that you speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Francis Schaeffer, the missionary to Switzerland for many years, established Labrie Ministry, once asked the question to a group of Presbyterians, if the Holy Spirit were cut out of your Bibles, would you even notice? You're not going to laugh much because it perhaps strikes too close to home at times. And that's particularly important for us to think about when we look at Romans 8. Because as you course through all 39 verses, you find a preponderance, just a multiplication of the term spirit. And today we arrive at particular two verses where there is an unusual and an overlooked aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that also deserves our attention. And so we're going to pull these two verses out, not our habit to necessarily look at such a limited amount of material, but we will look at that unusual and overlooked aspect of the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. In his novel, East of Eden, John Steinbeck, you may be familiar with it, creatively retells the story of the first pages of the Bible echoing the lives of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, you and me, and his characters. The main character is a man named Adam Trask. He's a wealthy landowner from the Northeast who relocates with his fortune to the central California Salinas Valley. He owns a large farm, and he's curating and developing that farm for the sake of his wife, who he loves, and his twin sons. But then, almost inexplicably, everything falls apart. His wife leaves him. And with the departure of his wife was also his dreams. Everything that he had hoped for, everything was thrown down and trampled. And Adam Trask struggled to pull his life back together. He was despondent. His farm was once full of life and promise. Now it was just lying there, fallow, and it was overgrown. The condition of the farm mirrored his soul. It was unproductive, forlorn, and empty. And it is the unique property of suffering to be able to do this to us, to be able to engender such discouragement and despair that we're rendered useless, unable to move, paralyzed, And we noted last week in verse 18 that the context of our lives is defined by suffering. 
Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the assumption that the context of your life and of my life is that it is one of suffering. And by that, he has a very broad understanding of what suffering is. It's not just simply persecution for the sake of Christian faith. But rather, he's referring to the sufferings of a world that groans and rocks and reels under the burden of human sin. That is the world that has been subjected to futility. That now we live in a world that is full of thorns and thistles and the sweat of our brow and broken relationships. That there's weakness and fragility in our bodies and we're subjected to death and decay. And we're alienated from God and even from ourselves. That this is the suffering that Paul speaks of, and that this is the context of our lives. And that between the resurrection of Jesus and between the return of Jesus, this is what characterizes life for us. He tells us that the creation groans beneath this burden of death and decay. But it's also not just the creation that's groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning, longing for the day of final redemption. We saw a beautiful picture painted for us last week. And all of this asks the very practical question. If this is the case, if suffering is what defines the context of our lives, all of those difficulties, then what resources does God give to us so that we can endure those circumstances? Last week, we specifically focused on the first resource in in verses 18 through 25. And that resource was hope. That God paints a picture, a new horizon he lays out in front of us of a world that's healed and renewed. And we saw that God created the world beautiful and good. And it was then corrupted by human sin. And so now it's subject to futility. But God is not done with his good creation. His plan in raising Jesus from the dead is when he returns to bring all of that resurrection power to focus upon this creation and to renew it and to restore its glory, its beauty, and its function. And so we have this marvelous picture of Christian hope. And this week when we arrive in verse 26, we find that there is now another gift that God gives to us to resource us in the midst of suffering. In 26, Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In other words, what Paul is arguing is that as hope is given to sustain us in the midst of sufferings, also the Spirit is given to help us or sustain us in the midst of these sufferings. This is an additional and added resource that God funds us with so that we can endure through this context, the groaning of creation, the groaning that comes from our own lives, the struggles and setbacks, the trials and the troubles. And there are three things in particular that should draw our attention this morning about this resource that God gives to us. First, we'll see our need for it, our need for this help. Second, we'll see the means of this help, how it actually works And finally, we'll see the efficacy of it. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, 
our need for help. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And our condition here is outlined for us that in a bruised and a broken world, we are weak. And this weakness, he will then define in a particular way. Note how he's going to define the weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. And so this weakness is not knowing how to pr- this weakness of not knowing how to pray for things properly emerges from two realities in your life and in my life. The first is just from being creatures, that is that we have limited understanding and knowledge of the will of God. We don't know the mysterious things of God. And so we have a limited understanding of what his plans and intentions are. But the second part of that weakness that dominates his discussion here is that of being a sinner. We don't know what to pray for as we ought because our motivations and our desires, our needs and our perspectives are corrupted by sin. It's filtered through every part of us. And so in the midst of our trials and troubles, this weakness manifests itself We don't know how to pray as we ought. And that's not saying that we don't have the right form of prayer. We could pass out any number of devotional guides and it wouldn't change this. We could write out elaborate, long, beautiful prayers for you and it wouldn't change this. We don't know how to request is what Paul is saying. We don't know how to request the proper things. And perhaps you've been there before in your own experience. You simply don't know how to pray for a situation. And you have found that your words simply fail you. Perhaps it was a moment of personal failure. And in your disappointment and shame, you didn't know what to say. Didn't even know where to begin. Perhaps it was an overwhelming wave of anxious concern that paralyzed you. And words just couldn't get out. Or perhaps it's a moment of tragedy and loss. Those moments in life where sorrow and affliction overwhelms you and leaves you speechless. You don't know what to pray. And Paul is speaking about those moments, those particularly difficult moments in life. But it's critical to recognize that he's speaking about something broader here. He's not just saying that we sometimes don't know how to pray. He's saying that this is the general condition for Christians who are still dealing with the remnants of sin. He's saying, in general, we don't know how to pray as we ought, and especially in the midst of suffering. And so we have to ask the question, why exactly is that? Why is he saying that we don't know how to pray? two reasons for that. The first is that we struggle to keep the big picture in view. That is simply that we don't know the will of God, the beginning and end of things. We don't know how all the twists and the turns of his wisdom will come out in the end. Our wisdom is too limited. And I'm reminded of the verse from Deuteronomy in chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things 
belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. But the secret things of God, we're not wise enough to discern. We don't know. And so, friends, we have to recognize that, that we don't know how to pray specifically for the will of God because it is beyond us. But the second reason that we don't know how to pray as we ought is that we also don't love the right things. Even if we could perceive the will of God, even if we could know it exactly, we would have to be honest and ask ourselves the question, would I exactly want that? Would I choose that? Now, there's certainly some people who are going to populate a church who are going to say, yes, I would. But upon reflection, I think we know the real answer, that we wouldn't. Because the fundamental rebellion in our hearts is one that lacks trust. That we don't trust God's good and fatherly intentions for us. And so even if we knew that big picture view of the will of God and this was all going to work out, we would still have this fundamental distrust at work in us. And it is the second thing that we particularly see Jesus laboring under, burdened by, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, he understood the will of God. He understood that the plan of God for the salvation of the world required the death, an unjust death, of an innocent and a righteous man. And even though Jesus knew what the outcome of that was to be, that this would be the plan for God to unite all things in heaven and on earth. This was the plan of God to be able to reconcile sinners to himself through his own sufferings. But Jesus in the garden faced one last, one final, one ultimate temptation. Was he going to submit himself to that will? Of course, climatically, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus orients his prayers properly. He loves the will of God. He accepts it. He embraces it. And so it is that second hurdle that we face, that we don't always love the right things and we don't want God's will, and that impacts our prayers. We're not like Jesus. We don't have the big picture in view and we don't love the right things. And Paul summarizes that simply by saying, we are weak. That's our condition. We live in a state of dependence and weakness. Paul's going to then turn, though, the second thing that we see here about this help is we see the means of God's help. Look in the final part of verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This may raise a question for you. If I don't know how to pray as I ought, then why bother? If I'm so beset with weaknesses, then why do I bother to get on my knees or to stand up and pray? Why do I even bother to do that? And here it's critical to recognize that our prayers 
with all their misguided requests and all their twisted motives, that God does something even more mysterious for us when we engage in prayer. We saw in verse 22 of chapter 8 that the creation groans. And then in verse 23, we find that we too join in that chorus with all creation and we are groaning, longing for the day of redemption. And then that same language is picked up once again here in verse 26, that not only is the creation groaning, not only are you groaning, but the Spirit now groans and the Spirit intercedes for you. And so in our weakness, we learn that the Spirit is groaning on our behalf. In other words, in our prayers, there is a groaning that takes place that's imperceptible to you. This is not a language that is spoken. It's not specific to you. It's nothing that we know. It's outside of us that the Spirit is objectively acting on our behalf in and through our prayers, interceding for us according to the will of God. And so over and against our request, above and beyond our request, in and through our request, the Spirit is interceding for you. And so why do we pray? It is in this act of prayer that the Spirit is active In prayer, we come with our request, and of course, we attempt to order those as best we can according to the will of God. That is why week by week here in our service, we say our prayers after after listening to Scripture. We've listened to the revealed will of God, and so that will direct our prayers, and that will offer us the, the moment and the opportunity to organize those prayers according to what God loves but we know that too is still insufficient. And so what we do as we come to God, as we bow our knees, as we say our prayers, as we submit ourselves to his wisdom, and we recognize his wisdom and we recognize our weakness. And it's in this submission, this dynamic that's at play, that the Spirit is interceding for us. He is the backdrop of that conversation. And so in all of our weakness, in all of our limitations, and all of our liabilities, we have this great comfort that as we pray, the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And friends, this is why we pray. Because we know that there is something going on. There is a deeper mystery taking place. And we have a great comfort The third part of this, though, explains why we are so greatly comforted. Because third, we see the efficacy of this help that the Spirit provides. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This verse can be a bit difficult to follow. But the argument is essentially this, that since God knows the secrets of our hearts, he's the one who searches us and knows us. Paul is simply quoting the Psalms of the Old Testament. God then certainly knows the desires of his own spirit. God knows your heart. God definitely knows the desires of the spirit. 
The two are in perfect harmony. And so therefore, not only is the Spirit interceding for us, He's interceding for us according to that mysterious and unknown will of God. And so these prayers that are being offered on your behalf as the Spirit groans are perfect prayers. They're right prayers. They're prayers according to the will of God. And so, yes, God invites us to bring our requests and our desires. And we present those to him. And we come in all the weakness and the humility recognizing that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And we say that at least once a month in our own corporate prayers. And in recognizing our lack of wisdom, in recognizing our corruption from sin, we own that. And yet we're comforted because there is efficacious prayer taking place on our behalf as we come to God in prayer that the Spirit is mediating for us. And so in our prayers, no matter how muddled, no matter how messy they may be, no matter how inarticulate you may feel like your prayers are or lacking in theology, no matter how confused and no matter how twisted you may find your prayers on certain days, this is your great comfort that as you come to God, especially in the midst of sufferings, in this context in which we live between the resurrection and the return of Jesus, that the Spirit is presenting effectual prayers on your behalf. It is indeed a deep mystery. But friends, it is a resource that God gives to you because the rigor of your life and of my life in the trials and the troubles, in the struggles and in the setbacks of this context of suffering and brokenness, of a world that's not healed yet. We need resources from God. Otherwise, like Adam Trask, we find ourselves forlorn and empty and lost. But in knowing what God gives you, in seeing that he fills you with hope, of the world to come. And then that he does this deeper mysterious thing of the Spirit interceding for you. These are two of the resources you and I desperately need to trust. And so friends, though mysterious, though difficult to get our minds around, find great comfort in the promise that the Spirit intercedes for you due to your weakness. And let's go to God and let's ask him for his help in that weakness. Let's pray. Father, we do confess this morning that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And yet in all of our weakness and all of our limitation, you do not simply cast us aside. You don't leave us resourceless but rather you grant us this deep and mysterious ministry of your spirit. And so it is in and through your son, by the intercession of your spirit, that we come to you today and hear us as we seek to pray according to your will. And so let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns. Let's pray for God's saving power to be known among the nations especially praying for our mission partners, Ross and Angela Floyd, 
working with Mission to the World. Asked the Lord to provide the last bit of funds needed for them to move to Panama City. And asked the Lord to continue to work in the church in Panama to draw people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our local ministry partner, Toby Raglan, working with College Golf Fellowship. Let's ask God to empower Toby to faithfully minister to the needs of college golfers and coaches. And let's give thanks for a good report from Valen's surgeon this week and ask the Lord to continue to heal her body. Let's pray for all in authority, especially for our president, Joe Biden. Pray that he will promote justice, that he will restrain evil, and that he will uphold integrity and truth in our country. And let's pray for those who grieve. Let's pray for the sick. And let's pray for all who are suffering in our community this morning, asking God to heal and bring comfort. Let's remember Carl Ashour, Barb Day, Louis Fosnick, Sue Forsyth, Gar Gorganius, Hector and Viona Harima, Wayne Noble, Valen Raglan, Sandy Reynolds, and Jewel Smith. And let's pray for all the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to work within their hearts that they may never remember a day apart from Jesus Christ. And let's close saying the prayer our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.